We need accelerated climate action with deeper, faster emission cuts. Governments must lead the way. But corporations, institutions and civil society also have a vital role. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wagarong people. Stolen land, it was stolen by the first white colonisers. We pay tribute to the ancient wisdom that's guided them through millennia of nurturing their land and nurturing their communities. Through that ancient wisdom lies the solutions to the crisis that we've, the multiple crises that we're facing at the moment. Let's not forget. When we hear from the World Meteorological Organization that the past eight years were the hottest ever recorded on Earth, let's not forget who allowed this to happen. When we hear from the United Nations that climate breakdown is off the charts now, with sea level rises doubled in the last decade and glaciers disappearing faster than ever, let's not forget who could have changed the rules, who could have put regulations in place and decided not to. When we hear that two out of five Australian teenagers say that they experience high psychological distress as a result of climate change, and that's based on a survey where almost 20,000 young people were asked in the age from 15 to 19. Or when we hear that one in four young women say that they don't want to have children because of climate change. And that's from a survey that's just come out in Denmark where Deloitte asked 1,500 young women how they feel about the world and what they worry about and so on. And 26% of women in the age between 20 and 30 said they are considering not having children as a result of this mess that our politicians have created for us. So let's not forget who still today is responsible for this misery and who keep making it worse. Now we have Chris Bowen, our climate minister, coming here to Geelong, going to speak tomorrow, and I'm quite sure he's not going to apologize for anything to all the young people of our region who feel that their future has been destroyed and who are not going to put children into this world. No, no, Chris Bowen is going to greenwash slash brainwash voters here in Corangamite about how Labour is taking steps that's going to get us, well, at least half the way to where we need to go and at half the speed that it needs to be done. So, I say let's also not forget that we have an election coming in two years. And this time around, those of us who want to see change in politics, the time to get prepared and ready is now. Because we need young people. We need lawyers and responsible people to step up and step into this game of politics and run, for instance, as an independent candidate. Over to you, Colin Market, AOM. What has been happening around the world? I don't know. Do you have something about the UN um, climate report? Yes, I do. That's where I'm going to start with, Mick. It's, um, our global roundup really begins in Geneva in Switzerland, where the World Meteorological Organization released figures that you referred to earlier. They show that global sea levels are rising at a rate higher than ever recorded before. And the trend is set to keep increasing, probably for the rest of the millennia. 
extreme glacier melt and record ocean heat levels, which causes water to expand, of course, contribute to an average rise in sea levels of 4.62 millimetres a year. That's every year between 2013 and 2022. That's about double the pace of the first recorded rise, and that was between 1993 and 2002. Overall, the WMO figures show 2022 as the fifth warmest year on record, despite the cooling impact of a three-year La Nina climate event. At present, the mean global temperatures are 1.15 degrees above the pre-industrial average, and all of the world's nations agreed to try to keep them below 1.5 by 2030. We're already at 1.15, and it shows how we are failing in that promise in Paris. But luckily, there's a bit of help coming from the UK, where The Guardian's environmental editor has issued a simple language guide for governments, corporations, councils, and private individuals to follow that will cut emissions by half in 2030, and thus keep the world within reach of the Paris Agreement. What they basically did is that they took the UN's IPCC report and they cleared it down into easy-to-understand language, and they list more than 40 courses of action that can be taken. They note each solution's economic costs as well. And crucially, the chart also ranks which solutions deliver the most bang for each buck. So the five most effective options stand out clearly as superior. And they're in the following order. Number one, invest in solar and wind power. Together, if the world does this, they could cut global emissions by 8 billion tonnes a year. And that's the equivalent of today's emissions from the United States and European Union combined. And it would do so at a cost lower than if we continued with today's electrical systems. That's what the report says. Number two is stop deforestation. Leaving trees standing and restoring degraded forests and ecosystems could cut emissions by an additional 7 billion tonnes a year. That's the equivalent to the current emissions from Africa and South America combined. Number three is simply saving energy. Shifting to more efficient appliances, lighting, heating and cooling technologies in our first world homes could cut emissions by 4.5 billion tonnes. And again, that's cheaper than carrying on at today's practices. Because more efficient transport, including expanded public transport, will bring further cuts. Number four is cutting waste methane most especially plugging leaks at fossil fuel outlets as mining, drilling and processing facilities. They could cut emissions by an additional 3 billion tonnes. And number five is using biochar. That's burying charcoal in soil. It diverts carbon that otherwise would heat the atmosphere. Although relatively expensive, it could be paired with no-till farming to save 3.4 billion tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere. That's the top five things that is recommended in the IPCC report uh, once you dig down there and clarify it. 
Still in the UK and Scotland announced that its generation of renewable energy last year broke all records. The nation generated 35.3 terawatt hours of renewable energy in 2022. That's a 28.1% increase from 2021 and 9.8 from 2020. This is the equivalent of powering all Scottish households for more than three years. Renewable energy generation in the fourth quarter rose by 14%. That's the most in Scotland's history. Wind energy contributed uh, to the majority of Scotland's renewable energy generation in 2022, with 27.5 terawatt hours, 5.8 terawatt hours from offshore wind and 21.8 terawatt hours from onshore winds. Scotland's net electricity exports, because clearly they're making much more than they use if they're creating three years worth in one year. Uh, their net electricity exports, mostly to the UK, and uh, the rest of the UK, I should say, increased 17% to 18.7 terawatt hours in 2022, with an estimated wholesale market value of £4 billion. That's around eight billion dollars Australian and that's enough to buy a third of one nuclear submarine. I just dropped that bit in myself at the end. To Spain where the record-breaking eight-year drought has the southern region of Catalonia in its grip. The reservoir that supplies water to Barcelona is down to eight percent of its capacity and the city and its regions with a population that has risen to more than 5.5 million face strict new regulations. There are limits on the water use in, uh, in these areas and bans on washing cars and watering, things that we put up within the 1990s, you could say. Um, but the, the extensive use of water for agriculture in Spain accounts for 80% of all the waters used, and it's deeply affected. That has been cut by 40%. 2022 was the warmest year on, on record in Spain, with scientists saying that the man-made climate change is principally to blame for the current drought. And then finally, news of the world's greenest sports club, Forest Green Rovers, the football team who play in Gloucestershire League. Uh, they played Cheltenham at the weekend. They lost 3-1. So now they are definitely back in the division that they left last year. But there's much better news from the Rovers women's team. They're called the Forest Green Rovers women's first. They won 3-2 against Pucklechurch ladies. And that means they win the Gloucestershire Women's FA Cup final. So despite the men's team being relegated back to the second division, the women's team have put some silverware on the mantelpiece for 2023. And that's my roundup for the week. Listen to our Sustainable Hour for the future. Our first guest today in the Sustainable Hour is Mike Botsworth, who is Deputy Mayor of Surf Coast Shire. And seen here from Geelong, Surf Coast stands out, shines as an example, as a climate leader in our region, together with Queenscliff. You were the first to declare a climate emergency and then to begin to make plans accordingly. So 
I'm excited. We're excited here in the Sustainable Hour, Mike, to be able to bring now to our Geelong listeners a bit of an update on what's going on in the surf coast, Shire. How far have you come and how does uh, the climate look uh, when when seen from your window at the City Hall in Surf Coast Shire? Yeah, thanks so much for the question and the opportunity to come and talk to you on the Sustainable Hour, Mick. Um, so, yeah, council, our council declared a climate emergency in 2019. And um, from 2021, we've been working on implementing our uh, climate emergency response plan. So, as you said, Mick, it's um, you know first that declaration and then putting together a plan that actually maps out the things that we can do about it. Things that, you know, maybe a, a, a drop in the ocean in terms of the uh, global scale factors that you've talked about, but are really important. And I've had a look through the um, the summary of the latest. IPCC report, and one thing I took away from that was that every every ton of CO2 um, that, that we can avoid going into the atmosphere is is a good contribution. So although these things are operating at, at a huge global scale, uh, local scale um, emissions reduction is, is a really good action to take. Local scale uh, waste reduction and things like that, um, actions that that aren't that big in the global scheme of things, but they're, they're really important. And if everybody did those things, um, we all have the power to influence how, how the coming decades go. Um, so in your intro, you said, you know, you talked about people taking responsibility and that applies at every level from a local representative like me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a member of my local Anglesey community. Uh, we have a number of sustainability actions um, rolling here. We all have the power to make a difference, and um, you know, I definitely took that away from the IPCC report, notwithstanding its global reach. Um, so, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was a, a carbon sequestration and biodiversity planting, which our council recently agreed to establish at Buckley, which is just north of Lake Motawari. Um, in, in talking about that, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of that area being the Wadawurrung people. And um, Lake Motawari uh, is named after Motiwai, which is a, a musk duck, um, which is an inhabitant of the lake. The lake's often dry these days for fairly obvious reasons. It, it is more correctly an ephemeral wetland than a lake. So drying and wetting and drying cycles are a natural part of its, its ecology. Um, but if climate predictions are, are correct, the, the drying is going to be a lot more common than the wet. At the moment, there's water in the lake and it's looking magnificent. But um, our council owns a parcel of freehold land there, which is about 12 hectares in size. And uh, we had originally intended to establish a, um, an accredited uh, carbon sequestration planting there through Greenfleet. Uh, we had a, an arrangement or an agreement in process that fell through and so council then elected basically came up with a new motion electing to um, do an independent and non-accredited uh, carbon sequestration planting there so th the goal with that is to um, offset our own uh, carbon emissions in a non non-accredited and informal way which obviously in an atmospheric sense is it's pretty much the same thing, um, but but there's the, I mean, you guys would probably know better than I do, but the whole carbon accounting and, and carbon uh, offsetting 
scheme side of things is very complicated and constantly shifting. Uh, it's too complicated for me to try and pretend that I understand it all, but um, I do understand that growing trees is is an important part of that, and uh, that's what we're planning to do initially on four hectares of this site, but uh, ultimately once we've funded it all uh, across the entire site being just under 12 hectares. So the four hectares is funded now. We've allocated $10,000 to that, which was originally originally to establish the the accredited um, agreement. Now that's going to be used directly to fund plants and planting. So locally sourced plants planted in partnership with local people, um, using local supplies and with local provenance. So it's a really, really positive story and a great site for interpretation and education as well. So what was uh, a kind of a lost opportunity to enter into an agreement with Greenfleet has turned into a great new opportunity to establish that site um, and not purely as a carbon sequestration site but as an education site and as a biodiversity conservation site. So really exciting. It's a small scheme that you're starting $10,000 on four hectares we in Geelong see every day the stream of trucks that are loaded with logs that have been uh, harvested in the Otways and are headed for Midway on our North Shore docks. And, uh, and we see the great container ships taking the wood chips out in order to feed the Japanese plants making Kleenex. And, uh, and we know that our... Otway's rainforest, which is in your um, council area, is actually giving uh, the world its Kleenex. Um, My question basically comes on the back of that. How on earth are you going to switch from the small scale that you're doing at Buckley to really take on board the devastation that's happening in your forests nearby? Um, well, I, I don't know a lot about the Otway's um, logging situation, Colin, but uh, and, and fortunately that's not within the Surf Coast municipality, so I can always fall back on that um, to cover my lack of understanding of that situation. I um, thought it was. But obviously the, the, well, the, some of the Bamber forests, pine, pine plantations would be within Surf Coast Shire, but... Um, I don't think any Otway hardwood would be coming out of, uh, in fact, I'm pretty positive on that, out of uh, Surf Coast Shire. But not wanting to cover up the question, um, I guess it gets back to that issue of scale that I was talking about before. And we'd, we'd acknowledge that this uh, planting project at Lake Motawari is a very small scale. It's a very local scale project with local involvement and a local impact. Um, and, and not really making a dent in those bigger in the bigger picture. Uh, I've found really interesting what what's happening also in the district in the Deans Marsh and Bamber district. Um, and I talked before we began to record the podcast about a, a video which I wanted to refer listeners to from Bamber Agroforestry Farm. Um, I first visited that farm when I was a landscape architecture student in the early 90s um, I, and I did an agroforestry elective through the Melbourne University Forestry Faculty 
and a young forester there called Rowan Reed had quite recently established that farm. So in the early 90s when I first went there, it was all young trees. Now that's, uh, what is that, it's over 30 years ago. So those young trees are now big trees. And Rowan has some fascinating insights into the carbon sequestration situation with tree growing, um, which I think have uh, application to what we're talking about at Lake Matawari. And particularly interesting is is what he talks about with growing timber and um, the fact that timber can sequester, like hardwood trees whose wood can last for centuries as, as furniture or as um, potentially initially framing timber, which is repurposed and used for furniture and things like that, those ongoing cycles of, of use and reuse might take place over literally centuries and the carbon sequestered in that timber stays there throughout the entire lifetime. I find that a really fascinating concept because trees growing in the wild sequester carbon. Eventually they die. Maybe they're taken out by fire. A lot of that carbon's released back into the atmosphere. Um, the carbon that's sequestered in, in trees converted into wood and the carbon that's locked up in wood can potentially be locked away or kept out of the atmosphere for centuries in that form. And I find Rowan's videos on YouTube super informative on that idea of locking up carbon sequestered by trees in timber. And mm -hmm. in our district, it's really interesting that we have a lot of uh, forestry and agronomy experts. There's Yanyangurt Farm also, which is highly celebrated, growing trees for timber for profit. Uh, for carbon sequestration and also for biodiversity. So, yeah, it's, in terms of that industry that's still underway, I can't really address that, but um, there's certainly major benefits coming out of what we're doing. Mm. It's really interesting, especially in light of the global report uh, from the Guardian's reading of the IPCC report saying that leaving trees in the ground mm. is probably more important than planting new trees. Stopping deforestation is the main one. But it's Absolutely. still excellent that you are replanting an area that presumably has been already harvested, I'm assuming. You're yeah, this is, this is a, a paddock, essentially. It's pasture. Oh, right. oh, look, you've got a, a, a strange municipality in that you are your offices are in... Torquay, which is a really fast-growing metropolitan area, and yet the majority of the Surf Coast Shire is further along the coast and interland, and that includes the Opways rainforests. Do you find that when you're having your meetings that the needs of the um, two different halves of your uh, municipality are completely different, and do, the, do you find that the the majority, which is the people who live in Torquay and surrounds, tends to take precedence over the minority of people who are out in the in the bush, basically, or the rainforest. It's rainforest, most of it, isn't it? So our, the Surf Coast Shire western or southwestern boundary that is down the Otways Way is at around Cumberland River. So um, I wouldn't consider that to be fully into the Otways rainforest, but it's certainly into the beginning of it. And your question's totally valid because, yeah, we do have essentially what's 
quite close to being a small coastal city in, in Torquay, effectively, um, with with really different needs and really different profile and demographics to the uh, to the the coastal towns, the small coastal towns, which are generally uh, surrounded by national park, and then those forest areas that you talk about, and then the hinterland farming zones, which include a lot of high-value conservation estate. Got the Barwon River coming through. We've got a number of important waterways. So yeah, it's well, there, there probably is a tendency for um, Torquay culture and Torquay issues to dominate, but that's offset by uh, our ward structure, for example, where we have there are two councillors from the Winchelsea ward, so they're 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 there to um, they're there for the whole municipality, but they're they're there to represent their ward as well and to ensure that the hinterland ward voices and issues are represented really strongly. Uh, I'm one of two Anglesey ward councillors, so. Um, Myself and my colleague Libby uh, are there to represent strongly our ward and, and the special needs, particularly around conserving um, local character, conserving biodiversity. A lot of it's national parks. It's not a council. It's not within the council jurisdiction. Um, but we're always really mindful of the fact that will future generations be able to appreciate the, the sense of unspoiltness and naturalness that I have coming to live here and that my children are growing up in, which uh, past generations ensured was kept in good shape and us and, and future generations need to do the same thing. Exactly. Mike, I'd like to introduce you to someone who I think we can call a leading Australian expert when it comes to carbon offsetting and sequestration and all that, the managing director of Climate and Capital Media, Blair Palise, who was uh, once the director of 350.org Australia and is now the director of philanthropy at S-Invest. Is that right, Seth, uh, Blair? Welcome. That's right. Thank you um, for having me. Uh, you've been listening to our talk here about carbon sequestrations. What's your comment to, to Mike? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It should, in a perfect world, like you would probably agree, we need everything, right? So we shouldn't be saying, oh, we can't regulate this well, it's all going to be bad. But we have to regulate it well if we want it to be real. And I think that's the big challenge when I talk to people or hear people talk about offset programs is at the moment the regulation is sketchy. Some places do it well, many places don't do it well or don't do it at all. And I think for people to have certainty that it's the thing they should support, um, the better we and faster and more credibly we set up regulation, the more impact it can have. And people can then know that, you know, being involved in it, whether they're supporting it financially or whether they're part of a program that does it, um, can mean it can be a good thing and, and really contribute. Exactly. And uh, just two weeks ago, we, we ran a, an interview here in the Sustainable Hour with a corporate lawyer who basically said that there's a flaw in one particular section of corporate law, the section which talks about the director's responsibility and duty mm. to the, the company. There's a line missing there that we could easily add <laughs> if we wanted planet. to, you know, which is that directors yeah. are not only responsible to their shareholders and to, to the interest of the company, but also they are not to cause severe damage to the environment. By adding yeah. that simple line, we could, we could change so much. And, and the Absolutely. question is, why, why aren't our lawmakers, why haven't they done that long ago? 
Well, that's a good point. Uh, I think uh, the idea of climate finance and, and good economic structure um, is still relatively new in the sense of how it can be used to get capital flowing much more quickly into solutions. And that's what we need now. So I, in my role at Ethinvest, formed something called the Climate Capital Forum. And we basically, it's an interesting combination of NGOs and, and climate finance experts, philanthropists, impact investors, and the businesses actually trying to deliver some of these solutions, whether it's renewables or battery storage or how we manage uh, rare earth minerals, that kind of stuff. Um, we had a first meeting and realized we were all pretty much in furious agreement about, about what needed to happen very quickly. And it's this kind of smart thinking about how we structure the economy. So since doing that, we launched a roadmap. It's available on the website. Uh, and it's really worth a look at because some of the stuff, you know, you'd think it's obvious, but it means we're constantly having to update legislation to make sure it reflects what we need now and what we need now is money to flow very quickly into the solutions. And there are so many barriers to that. And there are really simple things we can do, as you say, with that kind of language. Um, super funds, for instance, virtually invest no money in Australia in solutions because it's you know, because exactly of that language, you know, shareholders first. <clears throat> when in fact, with a little support from government, we could uh, encourage support or even recommend and demand that our own Australian super funds put an amount of our percentage of our own investments into these kinds of things. But we have to guide them to do that. So that roadmap looks at those recommendations. And we really picked the low-hanging fruit. There's lots of difficult things you can do, plenty of easy things we could do right now. And the roadmap has that. And, and what's fascinating is to see NGOs and industry all agree that these are things Australia has to do in order to update its economy. And you just look at what America did with the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically a climate change investment bill. Um, it's, it's up to about a trillion dollars of investment to shift the entire U.S. economy into decarbonizing. And if truly, if Australia doesn't figure out how to do this ourselves quickly, um, we will be left behind. So the time is now. We need that kind of regulation to happen. We need vision from our leaders. And, you know, we need them to take advice from people who really do have some great ideas about how we can fix these things. So, Blair, just to finish off on the carbon offsetting talk, What's the the roadmap talking about there? Is that a real solution, or is it just like like we hear some people say it's it's a greenwash? Mm, I think it can be a real solution if we regulate it well. Um, I think uh, you know a good recommendation report was done about what we would do to make offsets credible. We need to take all those suggestions and put them into practice straight away. It's also a global challenge that, in fact, the UN has done a careful job at encouraging a strong, regulated, and very clear way that offsets can or cannot be, um, uh, you know, assumed as a as a credible thing. And so, it would be useful too at the global level if uh, we could kind of tear out the um, vested interests and really look what look what a solid, reputable framework look like in order to give each country an idea of the best way to do it at the moment. Countries are really trying to guess as to what this uh, might look like if it were effective. Some do it well, some do it terribly. Um, Australia is not there yet. We don't really have much in terms of regulation of, of what it can be and what it should be. Um, so we have a long way to go, but we don't have a lot of time to do it. So it's got to be fast. Uh, I think that's totally commendable, Blair. And I'm assuming that you are in contact with the Albanese government and uh, mm. encouraging them to apply that flair because we are all aware that Australia is probably 
better positioned than any other nation because of our wind and solar capabilities to mm -hmm. lead the world. In fact, we're, we're dragging behind them. And this is, to my mind anyway, basically due to the fact that our federal government for decades has been kowtowing to the wishes of the fossil fuel industry, mm. uh, which donates lots of money to their parties. <laughs> as simple as that. Um, how on earth do you get them out of that mindset? Yeah, it is a really good point. We were there last Wednesday, had about 10 meetings. Um, I would give you some encouragement that they are absolutely open to hearing ideas. Um, I think, you know, it wouldn't surprise any of us that there's a bit of a PTSD after the last 10 years of government, where we're still thinking in a mindset that's about that kind of defensive, how to overcome, for instance, the last 10 years of, of the coalition that really not only did not help Australia on climate change and preparing our economy for a global decarbonization, but on anything, really. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, it was not good for uh, Aboriginal people, women, education, science, uh, and certainly not climate change in our economy. So I would say I have some sympathy for how much change they're having to get their mind around uh, for all of us to jump ahead. And I, I don't want to say that, you know, I have 100% certainty that I feel like they will do all these things, but it is a vast improvement. I mean, I would tell you that in, within a year and a half, we've gone from absolutely negative, like doing damage, to open to ideas for the best possible way forward, and some good thinking and some great uh, advice givers. And what I would recommend is keep an eye on the one message we heard over and over from DFAD and from Chris Bowen's office and others. Watch what they, is coming out in the new budget because it is expected to be radically different uh, and to invest real money and put forward some real solution ideas. So it will be the start, I hope, of a beginning of a dialogue that means we can open those doors, get thinking happening, and get creative about how we create our new economy through global decarbonization and find our leadership role. I think people are ready at all levels. The public is ready. Business community is ready. Governments are really ready with pressure from outside, like the Greens and the Teals. That pressure is really important because it does buy labor some space to do things that they might not otherwise do. Uh, and certainly at state level and even at, at council level where people really are doing the work on the ground. So there's some hope there. Watch the budget. We'll see what happens. It won't be the be all end all, but it'll be the beginning of a, of a process. And that that's really important. So, you know, a simple thing people can do when they when they hear about it and they read the media analysis is to write to their local members and say, really support efforts to do this stuff. Please do more. Show us more leadership. I think the more they can hear that from us, the more likely they are to, you know, get away from the fear factor that we've had for the last 10 years and really start to show some bold leadership. Yeah, I think that's a great comment, Blair. And as a um, local councillor, I certainly think that we're in, we're in a funny position because there, there's an argument that says we should stay in our lane and local council should concentrate on rates, roads and rubbish that people <laughs> refer to all the time. And we shouldn't get involved in in sort of global issues like um, like climate change and, and climate emergency response. But, I mean, I disagree with that really strongly. Uh, I feel like both on a kind of a civic leadership, local leadership level, but also on that practical level, we can really make a difference. And um, our council 
is one of many councils that buys electricity through the Victorian Energy Collaboration, VICO. And that's uh, a renewable energy purchasing collaboration. And that's enabled us to purchase 100% renewable energy across all of council's operations. And it's also saved a lot of money. And over, over time, it's going to save a lot of money well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is obviously freed up to, to be used for other good things. So as Colin said before, not only can you be contributing to, to good changes in, uh, in addressing the climate emergency, we can actually be saving a lot of money and using that for, for other good purposes. Mm. Look, I'm reminded of uh, back in the 1990s and the early years of the 2000s um, when the patchwork was, uh, what was it? Act locally, think globally. That's exactly what you're both talking about. And um, and it's a thing that we can do. All I'll say is that it's damn difficult because you're fighting against greenwashing, which is the slyest opposition uh and you've got to it might if you could find a way of letting all the other councillors in all the other municipalities in victoria if you could let them know how much money you're saving by uh taking these green measures you all know that money talks and at council level it shouts at our level at the moment it's swearing but certainly it shouts if you get in touch with the other councillors and say, hey, look, do you want to save X number of dollars? Do this. And then list your environmental things, actions. Mm. Definitely, Colin. There are a lot of councils uh, involved in the Victorian Energy Collaboration, so a lot of them would know about it already, and the ones that don't, I'm sure will. Uh, I mean, it is, yeah, it's, we've all got a role to play in spreading that news for sure. And Blair, with your role as the editor of Climate and Capital Media, mm. um, can you just give us a very quick rundown or, or like an overview of where you think we're at and how bad is it? I mean, we hear a lot of <laughs> doom and gloom, but, mm. but but you seem to be also very optimistic and you're someone who have, you followed this for many, many years. How many years have you actually been uh, working in this space of, of climate and, and sustainability, like with 350.org? Yeah. When did you start? 40 years, 1989, I felt dating myself. Started with Greenpeace in Washington, D.C. as a young, very young person out of uni. Uh, yeah, look, we have, I think, some reason to be optimistic. Um, the, the pressure is certainly on, but certainly the th reason we started Climate and Capital Media was very much to speed up that kind of disconnect between climate information news and the investment and business world, which is very conservative in what they look at and the way they operate. Um, but certainly you couldn't deny now that the, the sort of business end of the world doesn't get the opportunity side of, of responding to climate change. Um, and, you know, the, the critical nature of what the IRA in the U.S. did, because it went from uh, a country not unlike ours that really was not going to act very particularly well on, on climate change to a trillion dollars where, I mean, you can call it socialism if you like, but it's, it's a readjustment of the U.S. economy saying that this is front and center and we need to do the same in Australia. But the reactions from Europe, China, Canada, um, and, you know, hopefully us, 
shows that this lit a rocket in the world under how the speed of change and the amount of money flowing. Um, so one of the funny challenges of starting Climate and Capital was we started out saying, you know, we have this purpose of trying to speed the capital up. You know, how do we get people to even understand it? Uh, because they don't. And this for me came very much out of having worked on the divestment campaign and watching how impactful that can be. And then well, the big question was, well, what next do you do? Climate capital is a bit of a response to that. Um, but the interesting thing about it is literally they passed that bill by one vote. I mean, it was so unlikely that it was going to get across. Um, and it's like the chains are now off and the money and the innovation and the you know incubating programs and the venture capital. And it just suddenly is all flowing about 100 times faster than it was before they passed that bill. And that has a global impact. So the hope is that this, and of course, you know, as you say, greenwash is always there. We have to be careful all the time that things are checked. Um, but I, I hate to say it. I mean, it's now at that point in time on climate where we don't have a lot of time to check everything carefully. We have to throw everything we can at it. We'll make mistakes, of course. But we're now at the point where we have to try anything we can to reduce emissions quickly. Um, so that's a very different mindset. And it's time for you know the world to kind of begin to get their head around triage, if you will, in understanding which solutions when most effective, how fast, and how much money does it cost. Mm. Um, and you know, let it loose. And I, I, if you haven't read the drawdown book that uh, Paul Hawken did or, or flick through, it's a beautiful kind of uh, coffee table-like kind of thing. It's just the perfect way to understand the idea of the mindset we need to draw down emissions as fast as we can. And, and it's a, such a complex, you know, a, a combination of factors you have to consider. The Will we really do that? Is it so expensive we can't do it? What has the biggest impact fastest? You know, it's a, a multiple complex picture of which things to invest in and to pick. Um, but it certainly gets you thinking when you flick through that book to understand what we're all facing. Uh, and for governments, including local governments, to try and look at where they can have the biggest effect as well as investors. Um, so, uh, you know, fascinating time. Uh, and in my 40 years of this stuff, uh, never a more exciting time, really, because it's all in play and people's thinking is different. Uh, and it's pretty great to see some people around the world that, you know, often were talking in the wilderness about solutions, now getting front and center stage to talk about these things and being welcomed and open to hear what they have to say. So Blair, uh, follow me here in this thought experiment. Go 40 years <laughs> back now, you are in your early 20s and you are getting a phone call. It's a survey, they're asking you, do you want to put children into this world? What would you say if you were 20 today? And what would you say to those women who really, apparently according to the mm. polls, 26% of young women in the age between 20 and 30 are answering, I don't think I'm going to put children into this world. Yeah, it's a really depressing and sad statistic <laughs> that people don't feel like they have enough optimism to think about having children. It, it's um, hard not to think of that and feel worried for the human race. Um, on the other hand, funnily enough, I didn't have my son until I was 40. I didn't think I would have children or a child. And I yeah, a lot of it was this environmental stuff and, and feeling like there was just too much to do. Uh, that was too important. But that said, it was the most wonderful thing. I'm so glad I did it. And uh, it, of course, it varies from kid to kid, community to community. But the things I see coming out of my son's generation, he's 19 now, they're an amazing bunch of, of kids. And, and they don't think about 
look, sure, many do, and you worry about social media and commercialism and all those things, but his community is more likely to think about their quality of life and about sharing experiences and sharing ownership in a way that just didn't exist in my youth. And that gives me a little hope that they're thinking about the world differently and their contribution to that. And quite frankly, we won't solve climate change without them coming in behind uh, and doing good work. And I, I think they want to do that work. Mm. I, I, if I can, we'll chip in here with 40 years ago, the largest nation in the world at that time, China, had a one-child policy. Mm. And they weren't. Uh, they were by law and uh, not producing uh, as many people as they were initially, if you put it that way. Today, they no longer have the one-child policy. They're mostly, they're having two children per family, and they're leading the world in climate change. And certainly, in the manufacture of uh, things like solar panels and electric cars and things like that. So I'm assuming that in China they don't have the same mental restraints that we are going through with our young people. It's our young people that are saying they don't want to bring children into the world because of climate change. In China, where they've actually got a lot of action on climate change and they're working in factories that are making the solar panels that we're putting on our roofs here, they're clearly not restrained by the things that we are. I've, I've discussed this with my parents and they used to have similar conversations around the Cold War. Mm. And, um, Nuc nuclear weapons. Bring, nuclear yeah, weapons. How could you bring yep. children mm. into this world that was threatened by, um, with nuclear Armageddon? Yep. And, uh, well, I'm glad they did because otherwise I wouldn't be able to join you today. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and I've lived a, a really you know, good and, and satisfying life and I'm able to make a contribution now as a local councillor. And um, I and I I feel the same way. I do. You just got to have a, a degree of faith. Uh, in fact, you've got to have a lot of faith, don't you? Otherwise, you do you do get lost in um, the anxiety of it all. And yeah, I, I I think that's a really great thing to try and hang on to, whether it's wishful thinking or not. Well, that remains to be seen. But there's definitely yeah, there's definitely a huge um, interest in my kids' generations and. Yeah, so I think it's very true what you're all saying. And I just want to give a quick plug also to a council um, climate emergency grant program that we have out at the moment. It's live at the moment if you look up the Surfco Shire Council website. So for people in local communities who are, who've got ideas and want to try and pursue those through our grant program, um, that, can, that can help you feel a lot better too. If you if you see your idea get up and you're able to actually get some money to put it into action, so go for that, people. Humanity is at risk of extinction, and so is everything we have ever created. Our works of art, our favorite novels, our historical buildings and artifacts, our traditions, we're terrifyingly close to losing everything we value and love. We cannot rely on our criminal government or our cherished institutions to save us. Our government knows that new oil and gas means a death sentence for billions. Yet, they are continuing with plans to license over 100 new fossil fuel projects. This means more heat waves, more crop failure, and more death. It is criminal, an act of genocide against billions of people in the poorest countries on earth 
and an act of war against the young. From the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the soil that grows our food, humanity's health depends on the health of Mother Earth. Yet, we seem hell-bent on destruction. Our actions are laying waste to forests, jungles, farmland, wetlands, oceans, coral reefs, rivers, seas and lakes. Biodiversity is collapsing as one million species teeter on the brink of extinction. We must end these relentless and senseless wars on nature. We have the tools, the knowledge and the solutions. But we must pick up the pace. We need accelerated climate action with deeper, faster emission cuts to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We also need massively scaled up investments in adaptation and resilience, particularly for the most vulnerable countries and communities we have done the least to cause the crisis. Healthy ecosystems, from oceans and rivers to forests and prairies, are also critical in our fight against climate change. Let's get to work to implement the historic UN Biodiversity Agreement to ensure that 30% of Earth's land and water is protected by 2030. At every step, governments must lead the way. But corporations, institutions and civil society also have a vital role. Finally, we must learn from the time-worn wisdom, knowledge and leadership of indigenous peoples, whose environmental stewardship stretches back millennia and hold many of the solutions to the world's climate and biodiversity crisis. This earth day, I urge people everywhere to raise your voices in your schools, workplaces and faith communities and on social media platforms and demand leaders make peace with nature. Let us all do our part to protect our common home for the sake of people and planet right now and for the generations to come. Our responsibility is right now. We have reached the moment of truth. And we adults bear a heavy burden of responsibility. In 50 years, we have changed the conditions for life on Earth as they have prevailed for 10,000 years. What happens in the next 50 years will determine the conditions for life for the human race over the next 10,000 years. We're standing on a knife's edge. The future will be decided now. Um, how we get out of the sort of rut that we're in of, um, oh, we can't do it, or our generation can't do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted in, in the fact that I applaud again and again and again the teal women that we voted in to get rid of pale white males and replacing <laughs> them with, with mums who knew what they're doing. But my big worry now is that they're going to be rolled in by the machinery and um, and bribed by the lobbyists and turn into politicians, and I do hope they, they don't. Mm. I have a son who is soon 18, and I had the discussion the other day where it was, it was a kind of an existential discussion that comes out of the big questions about climate change, I guess. The point being that, you know, when we talk about life and death, don't always think that because, you know, there's death, that means that life is depressing. These two things don't have to be connected. Uh, yesterday, I went to a, a, a big, you could say it was a big party, it was a fundraiser and things. 
uh, for someone who's got cancer and who's been told he has only got a few months to live. Yet there we were, all of us celebrating this person, and it was such a warm, beautiful experience. The community coming together and all the good things that were said and shared. Um, and we know we are not here forever. So climate change, yes, problems, yes, but it also means that we can step in as solution makers and thrive from that feeling of that we are creating solutions, just like the two of you, Blair and Mike. So for instance, step up and get into politics. There's a need for people now to join and push for the, the Teals movement or to join the, the Greens. The Teals and the Greens cover politics, the blue and the red side of politics and could change politics as we're seeing they're already doing, but they don't have enough votes. They could get a lot more support from the population if we really wanted to see some action on climate. Yeah, I just wanted to say one quick thing about um, the Teals. I still keep in touch with them, worked at the state level in New South Wales a little bit, not not as successful, but um, a good thing to try to do. And I keep in touch with uh, three or four, having worked as a volunteer strictly in the early days of, of that idea of we need something else and, and it needs to be out of the party system. The one thing I would say in terms of them you know, in in government now, you know, they, because they're not in a party, they it's just a different setup in terms of donations, and um, they're very transparent about where the money is coming from, and and, and it's just a, a different mindset that being out of that party structure allows you to hang on. I think to to that community commitment that you made, and that you're constantly answering to that community instead of to your party, and I still think that's fundamentally important, and I think it's important at all levels. Um, one of the New South Wales candidates that I kept in touch with, I just met up with on Friday, and uh, two of them actually are continuing on with great ideas, even though they didn't get elected, great ideas about ways they can kind of keep democracy close to the community that elected people. And so one is forming a, a generic party that um, anyone can use, which is a clever idea if you don't want to be in the party structure but you don't want to have to set up a party before every single election. It'll sit there. And as long as you meet the kind of general standards of, of the local kind of community voice that it's trying to be, um, that's her plan is to try and set that up so that it can work nationally. Very clever, I think, uh, because in many ways, my feeling is the two-party system has been broken and, and we need the ability for people to pressure from outside of that. Um, and the other is thinking about uh, maintaining a real profile on things like development and, uh, Again, another thing that local people really feel like they don't have a say in. So looking for channels and avenues for people to be able to stay actively involved in community planning, city planning. Um, so it's fascinating to see these women uh, have a go, not make it in, but still be committed to uh, doing more. And I, I think there'll be more of, more of that. It's interesting how many of them are women um, and, and feel like they are tired of being told they shouldn't have a voice or no place for them because they don't want to play in the party system. Um, I think it's really more important than ever that we keep this idea alive, that, that independence can play a really important role in Australia. And um, here's some more of that, I hope. And, and, you know, not letting it quiet down and disappear in the three years or so till the next federal election, um, to keeping that idea alive and being ready. As you said earlier, uh, we need to be ready. It's, we'll have by-elections, we'll have the next election before you know it, we'll be there, and we have to keep the pressure on. 
And could that include you, Blair? Are you going to run? <laughs> I think I'm a little too honest to run for government. <laughs> uh, and, you know, having been attacked by the Murdoch media as a volunteer in that movement, um, I think, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big, tough personal ask for people. And I don't, you know, me, I've, I've had a, a public career in environmental climate for years. But I think um, one area we really have, we cannot let go and we have sort of dropped is media ownership, independence of media, and the need for independent media as part of our democracy. We have not fixed this yet. Uh, you might have just seen the crikey case being dropped over the weekend. You know, it shouldn't be allowed to happen at that kind of harassment, uh, just because they have so much money that people can't fight against them. Crikey was very brave to say, we're going to take you on, take us to court. Um, but, you know, individuals in the midst of putting their hands up to run or, or take up a, any kind, whether it's a council role or a community role, uh, you put yourself out there. And it's, I think as a democracy, we need to do more to protect people against that huge power of the Murdoch media and others. It's not just them. And it can happen all over again. So I think there's really more work to be done specifically on media independence and how we protect it. Put yourself out there and find your role and be the difference. Be the difference. Always can be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone mad. It's true. This report doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this. It doesn't provide us with such solutions or tell us that you need to do this. And that's up for us. We are the ones who need to take to take the decisions and we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the the difficult questions to ourselves, like what do we value? So am I gonna open everything up? Am I gonna let fury fill my cup? Am I gonna be an anthem singing in the dark? Gonna light up like a burning heart? Am I gonna stand still as a rock? While everything shakes and tumbles off? Am I gonna remember the truth? Cause I wanna be nasty, wanna be brave Not let his fear make me afraid I don't wanna pretend I'm too small to jump the wall I'm just trying to remember her voice Telling me that every day's a choice For where there's good, there's bad But my child, you always can be the difference
I see a fighter, Lord, dear. 